Hello and welcome to the Ask Me podcast. I'm your host, James Smirthwaite, and today I'm very lucky to be joined by a special guest, Simon Pine of Green Energy Futures. Simon, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, James. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's good to be talking to you today. And um, I need to correct you straight away. I can't believe that. It's greener energy futures. It's greener energy futures. <laughs> okay, is. so they're not just green, they're even greener it, than green. Even better. Yeah. Even better than green. Well, there you go. That's not such a bad thing. Yeah. So uh, good, 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 good. So first place to start, really. Um, if you wanted to tell us a little bit about yourself and what your background is, um, where you've come from, because I know you've got quite an interesting background. Yes, yeah, quite varied. I mean, look, I I, um, I, I fell into sales. I think uh, some people who who uh, don't know what their their path in life is when they graduate from university sometimes fall into sales. And so I had a, a very interesting and, and fun sales career for sort of fifteen years, uh, working largely in kind of recruitment, and then migrated into energy related sales. And and uh, uh, so that's what I've been doing for the last ten eleven years. I got myself a degree in environmental science from the Open University, which I can highly recommend. Uh, as a learning experience, and that allowed me to kind of embrace that that passion that I was developing for for tackling environmental crisis. Uh, I was in South America about 15, 16 years ago, and uh, already then in Bolivia, I was seeing the ice cap retreating up the mountains, wow. and the and the latest um, latest reports are showing that, that there's very little left on a lot of these these Andean mountains. So I think that that those sort of events inspired me to get into this this area. Um, I did it by hook or by crook. Um, it had no experience. Uh, company was kind enough to give me a break, and it, and it snowballed from there um, to the point where I now um, I run my own my own business. So your your business is what your passion is, basically. So it's uh, what we all aspire to kind of achieve in our lives. Absolutely, I think you know, yeah, probably classic midlife crisis, right? Where you, you <laughs> think, you know, I've got the kids. I've got the house, you know, what do I do next? Um, so instead of buying a Porsche, I decided to try and save the world. Well, yeah, the polar opposites really, aren't they? <laughs> Two of them, so that's good. How long ago was that then that you decided to to sort of step away from sales and move into into climate change and net zero and everything else? Uh, I guess about 10 years ago. Yeah, okay. about 10 years ago. So it's kind of where it was, people knew about it, but it wasn't really a, a, a real focal point as as it is now obviously a lot's changed um, yeah look opinion. it's um, absolutely yeah um i think at the time i felt like a like a, a weirdo you know you talk to your friends about the environment and they'd say oh you yeah, know i recycle at which point i'd sort of clap my hands against my forehead and think okay that's that's great but really <laughs> there's so much more to it than that <laughs> it's good and what what do greener energy futures do then what's your what's your business and, and what's your role within that business well, so so I, I founded it um, about a year and a half ago, um, and there's now four of us. Um, and what it does is helps organisations turn that ambition to be carbon neutral into a reality. Typically, what we find is that organisations um, have an ambition to do it, but they lack the in-house capability or skills or time to actually get down to, to understanding what carbon means to them as an organisation and what they can do about it. And so what we do is we help them to understand where their carbon lies, what parts of their organization has the most carbon, and then we help them put together plans to tackle um, carbon reduction, maybe like a net zero plan, for example. Yep. And obviously, timing, and we spoke about this you know, before we started the podcast today, hmm. um, the IPCC, um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, obviously issued their first report in the, well, since 2013, yesterday. Um, so the time is probably quite good for you, really. And I know the last 18 months, we've spoken previously that y- your kind of business has gone from strength to strength. And, you know, you've had more and more people being interested in, in what you do. But I can imagine the kind of impact of that is going to be even greater now. Um, 
that Absolutely. you know it's such a major problem and people are now seeing the science behind behind it time and time again it's hard to ignore it isn't it it is and somebody put out a fantastic phrase on a, a twitter meme yesterday which was uh, something along the lines of um that people will be filming pictures of environmental disaster until you realize that you're the one holding the camera and seeing it happen um and you know that's that's how we're seeing it it's incrementally getting closer and closer and closer to us as a personal experience floods fires and all those kind of things and so the report is a real uh, it's it's a last call to arms the fire alarm is standing in the house and the house will gradually burn down unless you do something about it right now um and so you know for businesses like mine who are fortunate enough to kind of anticipate it a little bit um, we're finding ourselves in a position where people really want to act on it. And that's fantastic that as an individual, you have the power to make the change that is so important in the world. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a, it's a passion that has become economically worthwhile for me. Good, good. And I, I did also see that the kind of headline on it was that many world leaders have been told about this time and time again, but this is the last kind of generation of world leaders that have actually got an opportunity to do something before it's too late. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's never, a, there's never a sort of a too late is all relative, right? Um, we're already seeing damage. This is just about how much we limit the damage before it gets completely out of control. Uh, and so, it's great to be talking to organisations out there who have an appetite to make a difference. To be talking to entrepreneurs who want to make a difference uh, and and see the need to kind of scale up things rather than evolution. It's now getting to the point of revolution, and that 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 will produce opportunities for some people. Yeah, definitely. I think we're already seeing that. Some of the people that we talk to um, quite often, to be fair, and some of the other, some of friends and, and colleagues in other in other businesses, some of the stuff they're doing is incredible. And it's, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're finding a way to make a living doing something good. And I think I think that's um, that's amazing if you can do it. So um, yeah, fantastic. So you sort of mentioned obviously about what you do, and, and obviously we talked about the IPCC stuff a second ago, and about the people that come to you because they want to realize their carbon commitment targets so mm-hmm. what are the general reasons for this is it just they feel pressure to do it or do they want to do something good it's, it's you know it's 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 varied so if i look at i look at an organization strategically they will say how do we satisfy our stakeholders a, a business or any organization uh, and those stakeholders are, are varied so they'll always be looking at their staff make sure your staff are happy they'll be looking at their customers make sure your customers are happy and their their investors sometimes if they're a, uh, a listed organization and all of those are starting to bring to bear pressure internally there are green champions in any organization of any size now people who, who bang on about recycling these people you know consider it important that their organization makes a difference um, the customers now, when you look at the government requiring any contract of five million or more to have a credible net zero plan, um, you look at investors and something like a third of um, the giant trillions of investment that goes out into pension funds and so on now has a requirement of it being environmentally socially governed in a SG based target. So organizations are feeling pressure from all directions uh, and that's why they're now putting their money where their mouth is. And you you mentioned about the people who are the kind of the recycling champions that are now moving into yeah. those positions. And um, we've sort of seen a bit of a shift, really. Uh, you know, people moving into chief sustainability officer kind of positions that are now as important as, you know, CFOs and CEOs and everyone else. It's a major part of businesses. And do you think that a lot of these people that have got the sort of CSOs in place are, are now at a tipping point where they're trying to generate and drive a behavioral and cultural change change through the whole of their business and and in what their service is. Are you seeing that quite a bit? Yeah, that's a really interesting one, right? So what you'll typically see 
is organisations who have uh, appointed a, uh, a small group to tackle the theme. And I think that some organisations haven't grasped that this is going to be properly transformational. This is not about um, the energy saving um, uh, paradigm. This is not about saying we can save money and save energy at the same time. This is a journey which will transform the way most organisations operate. And that means that actually you need to have more than a CSO driving it. You need the business to own it across all sectors, whether that's product design so that you've got less components going in that are less carbon intensive, less environmental impact, whether that's, you know, customers using the product in a more friendly and and energy efficient and environmentally responsible way, or whether it's how you produce it on site and the environmental impacts that go into making whatever it is. It's going to transform everything from A to Z of an organization. And those organizations are the ones that are going to win because they recognize that this is going to be behavior change and system change. It's going to be a complete shift in the way they do business quite quickly as well. Yeah, we're already seeing it. If it's going to be quicker than it is now, then that's going to be a phenomenal rate that, oh, it's, yeah. Um, yeah. that it's changing at. So I've heard it spoken about before um, and you look at different scopes within a business's operation to try and target carbon. So did you want to, I mean, for me, I, I don't know much about scope one, two and three, but did you mm. want to kind of elaborate on what those are um, for the listeners? Sure. Okay. So let's separate out your business into into three basic areas. Upstream, so everything that comes into the business. Operational, which is everything you, the, all the inputs that you, you take into your business there on, on site and the way you use energy. And then downstream, which is everything that goes out of the business and the customer uses. So the whole kind of value chain. Scope three is everything before your business and everything after your business. So it's all the suppliers that deliver stuff to you. It's all the carbon that goes into them creating the parts to your service or your your product. And then the downstream part of scope three is everything that goes out of your your offer. So it's how customers, how much energy the customers use when using your internet service or um, how they recycle the product that you've given to them, the comic that you've given to them, for example. So those are all scope three. And those are considered part of your wider footprint according to the greenhouse gas protocol which is the international standard. The operational footprint, which everybody's been saying I'm net zero um, to now, is just the electricity, power and fuel you use. Those are the scopes one and two in your business. So we're moving from a situation where people say I'm net zero on my energy and the fuel that I use in my business, you know, the air conditioning, whatever it might be, to one where they're saying I'm trying to be net zero for all of my value chain. So that everything that comes into my business and everything that goes out of my business as well. And that's a much more holistic and integrated and responsible way of looking at your carbon footprint. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. So a lot of the, the, the sort of headlines and the statements i've seen going out where people are saying that they are net zero and they have been net zero for five years or whatever it's been already a lot of that is down to scope one and two but they're now targeting the scope three which is the more intricate i suppose and difficult um part of being net zero yeah exactly well it's it's it's, you know the reality is that you and i um don't exist in isolation so you know you and i um eat food, and that has some impact on the world. But everything you buy, all the services you use when you travel around, all of those things have an impact. All of those are decisions that you make and you initiate. And so any organization wanting to recognize its impact on carbon emissions needs to understand that it's ordering goods, that its customers are using its products. And so to properly embrace a carbon neutral position, it needs to understand those things. And which one of those three is having the biggest impact on carbon emissions? Look, it varies, right? So you, if you've got, uh, so I'm talking to a, a construction company um, who make construction materials, their carbon footprint, often a lot of it 
is in actually in the chemical emissions that result from making their product. So a lot of theirs is in scope one or two um, and a lot less about their, the goods they purchase and the, the legal services or whatever they buy into the business. But then, you know, um, other businesses have totally different footprints. You'll have an internet service provider whose uh, emissions are almost negligible when it comes to uh, the amount of energy because they, they buy a wind farm somewhere. Their, their real emissions are, are very little, but the, all the electronics and kit they bring into their business has all been made somewhere and that all has hefty emissions. So it varies so much from, from organization to organization. So it's a bit chicken and egg really, isn't it? Until all those people that supply the components to those yeah. people that are trying to achieve net zero, you, you they can't really get anywhere on it and you know we i know we're trying to look at our embodied carbon in our products and things like that that's a real big focus for us at the moment because we're getting asked by construction companies and clients um what the embodied carbon of our equipment is and it's 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 tough it's a really tough thing to do but i think the sooner we start it um you know the, the better it will be and if if we know yeah. I, I don't know whether we'll get to a time where we purchase something in a supermarket and on the back of the label it tells you how much embodies car body carbons in it or whatever you know you can kind of see where it's going now in the future. So you, you totally can look essentially what we're going to end up with in several years time is a dual accounting system. I think we're going to end up with a system, a monetary system where things cost you money to buy. And there'll be a carbon accounting system where organizations have to understand the carbon impact of everything they do. It's going to run in parallel. So the organizations is the only way really of understanding how to reduce carbon is to account for it everywhere. The good news is, that as an organization, if you start to mine for the carbon in your supply chain, you'll undoubtedly find ways of working better with your supply chain partners and with your customers because you're trying to get rid of a, a resource that is unnecessary and, and, and harmful. And waste, um, so, well, it's waste, waste really, isn't it? It's stuff that we, you know, yeah. if we can get by without using more than we need to, then that's a, a really good place to go. So, yeah, exactly. brilliant. So, it's a tricky one. I know, and, and you've already kind of elaborated on it with scope one and two and three, but what would you say are the sort of three biggest quick wins that you tend to find when you get brought into a business okay the first the first biggest win is is knowledge uh, the reality is that that most organizations we talk to have a rough and ready feel for where their carbon is but i haven't put the the magnifying glass on it and you know our job as consultants is to help them put that magnifying glass we're not telling them anything revolutionary we're giving them the time and the the, the frameworks to say this is where your carbon exists so that's the first big uh, understanding. Um, off of that springs the need for better data. So first of all, a point in time assessment is number one. The second quick win is then putting in place frameworks that allow you to capture that better, better data capture, whether that's you know um, computer systems to capture data from your suppliers. Um, you know, that's, a, that's a great way of dealing with it. Um, typically what we'll see as a result of any initial analysis is that companies will have one or two areas where they will be emitting a lot of carbon. So one we're dealing with at the moment, um, about half their carbon footprint is just moving their product around the globe. And uh, whether that's between the factories that are making it or onwards to the customer. And this is, this is a product that typically weighs the size of an apple, but there's a bucket load of them going around the globe and they're manufacturing one site, moving to another to do more manufacturing, more manufacturing and moving it to another site to do more manufacturing across the globe. There's a lot of air freight going into it. So, you know, companies will have these bubbles of carbon that we want to help them pop. Um, and, uh, you know, th that's our job is to give them insight. Um, most organizations will also have a fair bit of money going into pensions and those pensions do provide an opportunity also to, to switch to, um, investments that have lower carbon intensity 
And what do you see as a single biggest challenge in businesses in achieving their carbon reduction goals? I think you've probably touched on it as knowledge, but you might say something different. Well, it's a good question, isn't it? So the two things that come out of it, you know, knowledge is nothing without action. So we can, like any consultant will tell you, you can tell a customer what you think the right thing to do is, but they then need to emotionally own that. So when we bring a message of, of insight of carbon, typically there's some willingness to accept that in the first place. Otherwise, they wouldn't be paying us to give them that insight. But to own the real extent of that, the biggest thing they can do as an organization is recognize the scope of transformation they're going to have to go through um, and, and get their stakeholders on board with, with making that happen. So that's the biggest thing I would say is be prepared for a cultural shift. Uh, and, you know, most organizations have been through something like, let's say, ISO 14001 yep. or ISO 9001, these kind of quality-based initiatives. Those require internal transformation. And this is of a, this is of a similar nature. It's putting in a process that everybody has to deliver against. Can you see other ISO policies coming out that are relating to, or are there other ISO policies that are available that are relating to carbon and being kind of, I know there's there's um, things that are being done to, to kind of be carbon neutral businesses and to, be, to declare that but is there iso qualities coming through that that people can have to adhere to um as a bit of a rubber stamp yes yes i think there's already an, an iso standard for um sustainability in fact, there's a few of them uh, depending on who you are whether you're a concert arena i think there's an iso twenty six thousand for sustainable purchasing so there's quite a few of these kind of standards out there that tend to be existing in, in pockets um but do any of them address carbon holistically I don't think so. I think they all tend to take it in pockets. There's an ISO 50,001 that you may have dealt with from a you know, Mitsubishi point of view for your customers asking for accountability, the energy that your, your kit consumes. Um, but that only deals with energy, which is only part of carbon. So un- unclear from my perspective. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I think it's a bit of a crystal ball as well, isn't it, to see what's going to come and, and what governments and, and uh, you know they're going to put in place to try and accelerate change. But obviously there's there's been a huge shift we've seen a shift probably in the last two years i remember talking to a couple of colleagues about trying to do something in our industry obviously the construction industry to to talk about net zero a lot more because it kind of arrived on the scene about two or three years ago as this thing and i know it's been bubbling away in the background but it's now at the forefront but obviously the recent pandemic has accelerated it even further Hmm. um and i just i suppose it it has happened It's, it's a bit of a bit of a loaded question but obviously people are now more aware of it in the public area so are you now sort of finding that you're getting a lot more people coming to you ask you to help them is it is is it is it kind of accelerated the growth and people are going from you know being in their peripheral vision like i said about four three years ago to now at the forefront is a real key thing for them to to address and and make right yeah i think so i think so i think i think they're being you know as as i mentioned earlier on that there's so many stakeholders that are now banging on their door um, whether it's, you know, uh, particularly vociferous and important member of staff, uh, maybe it's even the chief executive saying we're going to do something about this or whether it's customer demand forcing them in a position where they have to make considerations for it uh, or policy. You know, there's so many different ways that, that um, carbon is coming at organizations now that there is a, an appetite for it. Um, yeah. So, you know, we, you know we, the reality is as a business that's a year and a half old, um, I am having multinational blue chip companies asking me for, for expertise. And that's brilliant from a point of view of growth of a business, right? You, yeah, you yeah. don't expect this as a small business to get these so quickly. And I think that shows the level of demand and the shortage of, of you know, vast amounts of carbon experts. Yeah, but, but there's still only 30%, around 30% of the UK's FTSE 100 businesses that have 
signed up to the UN's climate or race to zero. Um, and there's only, I think I read as well, there's only 20% globally that are committed to net zero. So still an awful long way to go. I know it's a big, it's a big chunk, but that's just people setting targets. That's not people achieving it. Exactly. I think, you know, you've got to take that with a pinch of salt. It's great when people sign up to initiatives uh, like the Renewable Energy 100 and all these kind of things. And I have no doubt that um, some of the, the the petrochemical majors are signed up to some of these initiatives. Um, excuse my kids. I'm working from home like so many people. <laughs> so uh, occasionally there may be noise in the background. I've heard um, worse. Trust yeah. me. So, oh, well, yeah. OK. Yeah. You're lucky they're not swearing at the moment. Um, the, so, so, you know, the reality is that... Um, even petrochemical majors are signing up to net zero. What do these signatories mean? They don't mean much without action. So I think what we're seeing is, is you're seeing some of the people who have an appetite to make change. Uh, and I would hope that more are, are making changes behind the scenes. And do you think more is going to be done by the governments to to promote and incentivize reduction in carbon in businesses and also homes? Yeah, 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 yeah. They're, they're coming out with a rolling program of investment um, things like the public sector decarbonisation scheme, which dropped a billion quid last year, and that got snapped up and oversubscribed very quickly. Um, that was a billion quid to decarbonise public buildings. And, um, you know, there's other local incentives. So there's there's more funding being dropped into the arena. Um, I think the government is starting to see the real possibilities that green jobs can create. Um, COP26 is going to, um, you know, is going to put the government under the spotlight to deliver um, real change rather than just promised targets. Um, so I think. Um, so you think it's going to be mandatory for businesses to to come up with a their own plan um, over the next few years? I guess really something's going to have to be done quite soon. I, I think I think not necessarily explicitly. I think that a lot of businesses already have targets like the Energy Savings Opportunity Scheme, standardised um, energy and carbon reporting. You know, there's all sorts of mechanisms out there that catch businesses for for reporting on carbon and there's incentives as well so that people are being caught in all sorts of ways it's difficult to police down to the when we when we talk to um small enterprises people with let's say got 10 20 50 people those organizations don't get caught explicitly in these kind of legislative um frameworks as much what they do get is they get incentives um and the government even now is there's a there's a great hub i'd recommend people go to which is the sme hub which is the portal for small and medium enterprises to get a really holistic view of what they can do about their, their carbon footprint um, that the government's produced. So, you know, the information is out there. The incentives are, are out there. Um, I think everybody's going to get caught eventually. It'd be good to have a sort of a central place that people can go like that, that they can get the information they need, because not everyone can afford to kind of, you know, pay for services like yourselves. And, you mm. know, some people are only just starting out on their journey with businesses and, you know, cash is probably quite hard to come by at the moment. So, if there's places like that, that's brilliant. You know, we can we can promote that on the links to the with the podcast. Yeah, happy to. Yeah. You know, it's something we we bang on about a lot as a business in Mitsubishi Electric is is obviously renewable heating technologies, and I've I've seen so many conflicting things over the last two years to eighteen months about the future of of heating in the UK, and I just wanted to to get your views on it really, where you think it'll go, and I know it's not a one solution fits all because that's that's impossible. Um, but where where do you think it needs to go? Is it hydrogen? Is it is it you know electric? Oh, I'm glad you asked me about hydrogen. Uh, I think the reality is, if you look at a simple efficiency uh, analysis, why would you create loads and loads of renewable energy assets, <laughs> um, wind farms, whatever it might be, generating loads and loads of electricity that you can you can create and then put directly into the electrical system, and it has 
a wide variety of use for cars, for heating, for power, whatever it might be, uh, that can power heat pumps, which can be very, very efficient. Why would you do that? The alternative is to take that energy, that electricity from your wind farms, turn it inefficiently to hydrolyze water into hydrogen at something like 20, 30% efficiency. You lose all of that energy in the inefficiency of the process. And then you you, you carry that around the country in in the gas network, which needs massive transformation. My personal opinion, is that hydrogen is a red herring. It's distraction by the fossil fuel industry to maintain their position in in managing the the infrastructure for the gas system. I think it has a a position in some high energy, high energy intensive uh, industries, but it's totally niche and it's an enormous distraction. I would say heat pumps, great, efficient bit of kit, put it in wherever you can. Yeah, I I think it's... My view on it really is, is I've seen it as a bit of a stopgap, like you said, as, as people are kind of thrown it out there as it's an easy, but not it's, it's not an easy adaptation. It's easy for people to realise they can still use a gas boiler in their house. It's just changed slightly, and but they don't have to worry about all the network that goes behind it. It's just still producing heat in their homes and have to change radiators. And so I can kind I can see the appeal of it, um, mm. and I can see why they're they're pushing it a lot at the moment. And I and and I get you know talking to a lot of friends. I'm obviously bang on about heat pumps um, a lot and people probably get sick of it. And I get asked the same questions all the time about what we got, you know, why do we have to change the radiators? Where do we put the tank? You know, where there's loads of questions and it's not easy. It's not, we we realize it's not an easy fix, but actually long-term once you've done it, you've done it. And that you've got to do it once and you're sorted. Yes. Whereas with, you know, hydrogen, it's, it's still water's a massive commodity globally and there's a shortage of water in the world and obviously the last thing you want to be doing next is to start using that inefficiently being converted with renewable energy to create a fuel that you know we, we shouldn't really be looking at so well no exactly no i'm just i've just got visions of you down the pub now um talking to your friends about heat pumps in a really passionate way and then and they're all rolling at their eyes yeah uh, about, <laughs> yeah actually we, we we had a had a bit of a um not a situation but there was a, a scenario recently where i went camping with a lot of a lot of friends one of them mutual to both of us and um we got onto the topic of uh, over a couple of ciders and, and something else the topic of, of net zero and i went off on one and i could just see their faces going oh my god i didn't I didn't realize there was all these things going on and it was that serious a thing and my wife actually had to have a word with me later on and said i think you went a bit over the top on that you should have just been a bit of kind of gentleman talk <laughs> down the pub. but you know i just I, I think when you're in it you're in it and you understand it and you understand that things can be done to make the changes and i think there's still a lot of people out there who are very very much you know not aware of of what they can do and it's it's too big a problem you know i can't solve it on my own so i just carry on doing stuff until you know everyone else sorts it out and then i get on board with it so i i think um yeah, it's it's a fun time. Well, I say it's a fun time, not for the people that were sat there at the pub, but it, you know everything else is good. Um, but uh, so you kind you kind of mentioned about the SME stuff um, earlier, but obviously you only help the people that come to you and your colleagues and and uh, you know other businesses that work in the same area of you only rely on people coming to them to ask for your help. Hmm. Is there any other support apart from the SME or any other funding that people can get? to help oh, yeah. realize their ambitions because i you know, you know it's quite a hard thing you're going to say oh, i'm going to be net zero and then it's all well, how do we fund that it's not a cheap thing to do i get that there's, there's all sorts of interesting ways and they're not some of these just open there are openings that appear uh, and and then disappear again so the the, the public sector funding and, and the like uh, are windows that open on a regular basis 
Um, where I am based in Bristol, there's a, a local council fund for decarbonizing um, SMEs. Um, but there's also novel ways of approaching it. So I was talking to a business yesterday who, who run a quarry. Um, they have a lot of land around the quarry. And from their perspective, they'd be interested in engaging with the community, where the community funds the renewables uh, to go on the land around the quarry. The community gets some of that benefit back. And the fact that the quarry itself uses some of that electricity to power their operations. And so you can get funding um, through novel routes like that. So I'm also, the, I'm a non-exec director of um, a local energy cooperative, Bristol Energy Cooperative. And, you know, together through the willingness of the community to invest, we've, we've put together something like, something like um, 11 megawatts of renewable energy generation. And we're just about to um, build a, a hydroelectric dam um, in the suburbs of Bristol, which will be the first a first in its in the area. Uh, that's got European funding Amazing. as well as crowdfunding. So there's different ways of, of getting these initiatives off the ground. Um, and sometimes even even energy companies just put the kit down on the understanding you'll get a rental uh, agreement in return. So if you look at energy systems, you know they'll sell you a solar array um, at zero cost and they'll just charge you for the, the ongoing power. So there are ways of financing um, low-carbon initiatives. Um, even if you don't have to dig into your own pocket, you can get it from government from other investment methods. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of these things will save you money. If you can put your hand in your pocket, um, efficient systems like heat pumps will save you money in the long term. But every, not every community has got a Simon Pine. So, I, you know, I, no. I'm, I'm I'd say lucky, lucky enough to be on sort of the local area here, the, the Residents Association for the Climate Change, because obviously everyone's trying to do it on our local sort of area as well. And I know a former colleague of ours, did something similar to what you're talking about with the quarry, you know, a moment ago where they were lucky enough to have a local farm and the local farmer was, was more than happy for them to put solar panels on top of a load of their barns there and they can get the energy from that. You know, we, we're mm. in sort of in a suburb here, similar to you probably, um, where we haven't got that benefit. So is there, I'm just trying to think for other people that are listening to this that might be in a similar sort of position, is there somewhere they can go to get that information to, because it's a, it is a minefield of where to get the funding from and when it's coming and, and how to apply. And You know, you know, there, there aren't many. Um, okay. Generally what you'll find is, is, you know, you go to the energy saving trust or you go to um, SME climate hub, or these kind of government sponsored initiatives, they'll give you uh, a feel for what the possibilities are. They'll say, check for funding. They'll say, look into the business cases for these things. But um, the money tends to, and the initiatives tend to exist in pockets. And, and that's part of the reality is that that's why my job exists as a consultant, is to know where these pockets exist and to pull them out for you. So it's, um, it is time intensive to find this stuff sometimes. Um, and that's, I guess, you know, why we do well, because we can help people find these things. Yep. Good, good, good. I'm going to shift a little bit now, really, onto something that's also coming up. Obviously, we spoke about the IPCC, mm. but COP26 is just around the corner, and obviously, the media attention <laughs> is growing and building, and you know, people are excited about it. And I just wanted to mm. see, you know, ask the question of what you're hoping to see come out of that conference later on this year. Um, politically, I'm hoping to see Boris come out um, shamefaced and go. I'm, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. I, I think I, I should be putting more money into uh, climate change. Um, but, uh, you know, that's personally what I hope will come out of it uh, as a side effect. But um, look, I think um, what we need to see is people um, gulping, swallowing the implications of the IPCC report that's come out and actually committing to specific targets rather than, you know, nationally set goals with no particular end time on them. Um, 
the time for these kind of big Congress of parties is coming to an end. They, they don't seem to be terribly effective mechanisms to deliver change. Um, I'm hoping that these politicians recognise the weight that's upon them and actually come out with some concrete actions. It's the best we can hope for, really. Well, yeah, do you think there's going to be global actions coming out of it rather than, like you said, the UK of obviously fossil fuel vehicles now with new sale of the new vehicles is going to be banned from 2030 and they're talking about you know gas boilers and things like being banned but obviously that's one part of the problem is just as in the uk and we'll do what we can do and other countries are doing similar stuff in you know france and you know doing some really great initiatives do you think there's going to be a global action and global targets set sort of as a result of it as well well, look, look, I think, you know, the reality is that the US and China are the biggest contributors and they set the, the strongest tone for any outcomes from these talks. How they treat um, small nations, how they treat their own emissions and how they treat the relationship between the two of them are the vital parts of the puzzle, in my opinion. Uh, I would say that they need to, if they can get beyond one-upmanship and trying to outmaneuver each other economically and politically, and recognise the benefits of actually trying to solve the problems together, everybody wins. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a shared problem, isn't it? It's not like it's just one country's issue; it's everyone's issue. So, exactly. Or, or we could do we could do what they did in the Simpsons movie and just build a glass bubble around where we live. Yeah, there. happy for fine. that. Yeah, happy for that. Well, it might mean it doesn't rain quite as much here, and we can sort of control that, which wouldn't be a bad <laughs> thing. But uh, yeah, fantastic. Um, honestly, Siren, this is, it's been absolutely insightful. It's been been brilliant. Um. I just wanted to sort of give you the opportunity really just to tell people where to go if they want to find out more about what you do. Sure. Yeah, no problem at all. So look, um, look, we welcome conversations with anybody who has an ambition to tackle carbon. Whatever that ambition is, we want to help you um, have a chat with us and we'll see what we can do. Uh, the website is www.greenerenergyfutures.net. Um, that tells the story of who we are and what we do. And um, you know, very much look forward to uh, hearing from a few people. And you mentioned you're not just just working around Bristol. It's it is national, international. It's it's the whole lot. So. Absolutely, I, I would say it's um, it's UK based um, companies. So we're dealing with um, you know paper mill based in Cumbria, uh, a science firm based in Oxford, um, organisations around Bristol, uh, Coventry City Council, all sorts of organisations who need help with this. Fantastic. And I'm going to give you the floor now to put your final thoughts forward. Um, wh- what do you want to kind of leave the podcast with as, as your statement? Look, let's reflect on the opportunity. Um, we're all going to, we're faced with uh, what is effectively an existential crisis, um, not to put a finer point on it. And, you know, that is an opportunity to transform the world into a better one. Um, understanding your organization's position and what you can leverage to make that change happen uh, is the right thing to do because things are going to change rapidly over the next 10 years as we embrace the, the challenges of dealing with climate change. And, you know, your organization could be one of the ones that, that, leads that charge and benefits from that change true yeah yeah brilliant fantastic um thank you so much Simon. i've I've already said thank you but i I think i've probably not done it enough justice but really really appreciate you coming on today so much interesting stuff you've spoken about um so much stuff that i think people listening to this will will go away and research into and find more out about um what you do and and some of the topics and issues that we've spoken about today so huge huge thank you um Hopefully in the future, when things start to get addressed, we can get you back on again and and talk in a bit more detail about 
what's happened in the last 12, you know, 24 months since we last spoke. Well, it'd be great. Look, and I, I wanted to thank you for your time and providing the opportunity to, to talk about a really interesting topic and for me to to unveil my very bad Boris Johnson impression. <laughs> I've heard you Jerry Springer one. That was good as well. But uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thank you very much. Um, you've been listening to the Ask Me podcast. I'm your host, James Smirthwaite. I've been joined today by Simon Pine. Thank you very much. Thank you.